advice podcast for all of your questions about relationships, careers, and life. I'm Hannah Strom. And I'm Samantha Strom, and we are actually identical twins. I'm a therapist, and I specialize in sex and relationships. And I'm a career and leadership coach. You've written in with your questions, and we're here to share our professional insights and tell you that we've been there too. All right, let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome back to Closely Related. We are super excited this week, not only because we have a topic that we find really intriguing, but also because we have our first ever guest host, who is one of my best friends from college, uh, Caleb Jones. Hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, like Hannah said, I uh, we went to college together. We're really good friends. Uh, Anna's super smart, hilarious. She's a great speaker. She spoke at my wedding. Um, and I was really excited to uh, come on the podcast and talk about an interesting topic for sure. You know, it's really funny that you guys um, have chosen to have me on your twin cast because, um, you know, not to start on too dark of a note, but uh, actually I'm told that I had a twin in the womb that I kind of absorbed or, um, you know, fetally ate. So I hope that's not uncomfortable for you both. Say it like that. As White Fruit would say, I now have the power of an adult man. And a young baby. <laughs> well, Caleb, uh, welcome to the pod. This is kind of how we roll. So uh, we welcome <laughs> all people, including semi-twins. So Yeah, we've got a weird way to start this podcast. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no. I, I think a semi-twin is definitely a good way to put it, right? You've, yeah. You're part of the club. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Well, we can introduce our topic for today, which is status, particularly status in your job and in your career, and also how that relates to how you grew up and how you when you went to school, all that kind of stuff. So I feel like I think status is super fascinating. I have some strong opinions, which I will be sharing. Um, But I think it's one of those things that so many people are striving for without explicitly naming that they're striving for it. No, without a doubt. I mean, I think that basically everyone at some point is concerned about their status. And, you know, if they say they're not, they're probably full of shit. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like I felt this pressure to strive for status, but also not care about status. Like it was something that's that seemed maybe shallow and like so you shouldn't go for it, but then at the same time I really wanted it. Um, so I definitely have always felt a conflict between those two desires. Yeah, I think those two poles are always there that Hannah was talking about. Like it's definitely something that you want, but at the same time, at least most people who, you know, I know and I'm am friends with like 
it's also kind of a guilty thing. Like you're always kind of pushing against that desire a little bit. Yeah. I've almost felt this as a way of, I want people to really respect me and I want people to think that I'm doing really well, but I also want people to perceive me as really humble. Um, and I'm not humble <laughs> at all. <laughs> spoiler alert but i'm like always trying to downplay like whatever ego or pride i have because i feel like if i am too prideful that that will come across as like cocky and off-putting completely agree yeah i'm honestly i think i'm exactly the same way like i think we'll probably come around to this a little bit later also but like yeah you want people to maybe not think that you care what they think of you, but also, you know, you totally care what people think of you. That's one thing I felt a lot with dating and meeting people on a first date and almost like, almost like you're like dropping these like hints of like, actually I did this thing and I'm really cool, but like you want to play it off like really low key, but still show them that, you did this cool thing. And I think that that's been a really hard balance for me. I feel like sometimes I feel like I've undersold myself and sometimes I feel like I've oversold myself and it's really hard to find a balance. Yeah. That reminds me of job interviews. I I was going to say that same thing. uh, Yes. I've had (laughs) that experience a little bit recently um, because I've actually recently changed jobs and it's like, you know, do I just go in there and talk about how like fucking awesome I am the entire time? Because <laughs> that seems kind of ridiculous. And it's like also not really representative of the kind of person I am. Um, but you know, you want to present yourself well, obviously. And so if you're not the kind of person that just constantly talks about yourself, it doesn't exactly seem representative of like who you are. Yeah, for sure. So that kind of brings us to like careers and status a bit. So Caleb, can you say what you do and what status comes with that? Sure. Um, So I'm an attorney in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So maybe uh, competing status is there. (laughs) Um, Obviously, there's some amount of cachet that comes with being an attorney. And it's like, you know, not difficult to tell people like what you do. Like I've been in that situation sometimes and other jobs that I've had where it's like trying to tell someone what you do takes five minutes Mm -hmm. where now it's like, Oh, I'm an attorney. And then people get that. And, you know, there's automatically some amount of, I don't know, respect that just comes with the title. And then again, you know, I'm in Tulsa. I'm not like, uh, I'm not going to be on suits. I don't, even, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Megan Markle? Question mark? Yes, Megan Markle. Correct. Yeah, if you were a lawyer in another state, you'd not only be on suits, but you'd be married to royalty. <laughs> exactly. That status okay. right there. That kind of brings us to another... Another aspect that we're going to talk more about is how class affects status. And as Hannah and I have said in the show before, we definitely came from kind of middle upper class family. You know, we're white, 
American, tons of privilege. And I think that really impacted how we saw status. I mean, our parent, both of our parents had graduate degrees. One went to Duke, one went to Vassar, and they met at University of North Carolina grad school. So I think that really impacted us in many ways. But one was just that there was this kind of expectation of you're going to go to college, you're going to go to a good college, and you're going to get a good job, right? And not necessarily in a bad way, but in a in a great way of, you know, here are these wonderful options for you, and you get to do whatever you want, right? But also, it just kind of was expected that that would be our path. Yeah, and as you guys know, I come from a very different background. I think that's part of why you asked me to be on the podcast today. But I was a first-generation college student, um, definitely probably lower middle-class background. Um, My mom worked in a factory where I'm from in southeast Missouri. My dad was a truck driver. um, And, you know, I didn't really have a lot of those college expectations or those kind of things, um, you know, placed on me at a a young age at all. Yeah, I think that when I thought about you, Caleb, when we got the question that we'll get to in a second is that status, I think for us, for me and Samantha almost was like purely about prestige rather than even being in a place where status was more about earning a living or survival in, because it was like our parents had already had this form of success so we didn't need to get it to get out of a like economic situation it was more like okay well how are you gonna how are you gonna achieve but almost in a in a sense more for achievement's sake and that's not to say that our parents were like rah like you have to be perfect all the time like they definitely wanted us to like be happy and like do what worked for us but they definitely felt like this pressure that almost felt like divorced from the economic reality of what status can do for you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think kind of what status boils down to in a way is, you know, external validation. And that's something that really drove me to um, basically do well in school from a really early age because that was like, you know, one of my only sources of external validation was, you know, being able to bring home a good test score or a good report card. And, um, you know, I think I kind of got that hit of validation really early on. And um, it always seemed like a really good way to, you know, keep being validated, keep being told I was smart. And, you know, ultimately, I think that you know, it worked out for me fairly well, but also probably not necessarily the best motivator in life is, um, you know, to just be constantly validated by other people because, you know, in the end you want some other kind of, um, maybe more internally generated validation to be able to be happy with who you are without having other people tell you how great you are. And, um, you know, I would say that that sort of model of, you know, doing well in school and getting validated that way kind of runs out when you get into the professional world, because 
there aren't necessarily people who are just going to keep telling you how awesome you are. And that's definitely been a, an interesting and kind of difficult transition for me personally. Definitely. I think there's a, that's a lot of where imposter syndrome can come from is because you're not getting feedback all the time of like, you did it, you got an A or, you know, even like, here's this thing to fix and then you do it next time. And then, and then you get it. It's, it feels so much more nebulous and there's not someone there to guide you and then tell you good job and pat you on the head. I totally agree with all that. I want to read the letter so we have some context for this and then we'll just continue to have the same conversation. But, you know, it is a letter podcast, so want to make sure we actually read one as well. All right. As I search for my second job out of college, I feel like I'm really struggling with getting a job that's, quote, good enough, end quote. I don't know good enough for who. I would be happy with just about anything where I got to apply my skills and work regular schedule. I just feel like I have this voice in the back of my head telling me I need to have a really impressive title and position. I think that probably comes from a lifetime of being told to achieve in school and college, but I would love to hear your thoughts. So cool. Back to the conversation we were having. Yeah, I think that this is really, really common. Certainly not everybody feels this way. I mean, I think there's lots of people where this isn't the case, but I I know if it was true for us, I think that there's a lot of factors that lead to that. One is, I think, I do think that as Hannah said, I think coming from some wealth, there is that expectation that you need to maintain your status and prestige and like, you know, high society or, you know, the bougie society, basically. Um, I know that we're also half Jewish and <laughs> we heard like this story over and over again as a kid of like almost this horror story of our grandma was told, if you don't get an A, don't come home. And she was in kindergarten. So there's just kind of like, I think there's some cultural things. Like I know there's some of my friends who are first generation American immigrants. Like, you know, there's that pressure of like fulfill, you know, our dream of moving to America and we did so many sacrifices. So like now you need to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. So I think, and then, you know, Caleb, you had your own experience. So I just think there's plenty of ways that people get this mindset of I need to keep achieving yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I would say that I felt similar pressures, although definitely not the same, just in, you know, um, having done well in school, having gone to college, um, eventually going to law school. I think that, you know, ultimately you feel some some amount of pressure to you know, justify the fact that your family is proud of you to, um, you know, keep doing well, to keep um, showing people that their, you know, investment in you was worth it, you know, and, and no share is that a financial investment. Like my parents made extraordinary sacrifices to put me through a good undergraduate institution. And so, you know, at some point, you're going to feel a certain amount of pressure to justify those sacrifices and to do well and to prove to them and to your family that, you know, you were worth those things. Um, and that kind of brings me around to this letter as well, because 
you know, I started out as a lawyer, as a public defender. And, you know, there's a certain sort of connotation that goes with being a public defender. Um, People may not want to recognize it or people who are in our kind of liberal circles probably maybe deny that this uh, perception exists. But like, you know, people think public defenders, they think bad lawyers. Um, A lot of my clients would ask me if I was a real lawyer um, Mm. or they would like ask me if I was going to be a DA someday, which is extraordinarily galling Um, because nobody wants to be a DA. Let's be honest. Um, but then, you know, you get questions about like, you know, is this guy ambitious enough? Um, is he just going to, you know, settle for this position? And, um, you know, ultimately there were other problems with the job that, you know, is topic for another podcast entirely. But, um, yeah, you know, I eventually moved on to a job that definitely comes with a higher status. And I I would be lying if I said that, you know, status and some of those external pressures didn't probably have something to do with it. I think that part of this is that, like, there's always another rung to climb, right? So it's like, you're a lawyer, which is something that people would be like, ooh, a lawyer. Like, I know my partner's a lawyer. And when I tell them, they're like, what does your partner do? And I'm like, he's a lawyer. And they're like, nice, like, got a good one. Like, hmm, right? Um, But then even within that profession, there are these other rungs, right? And then within those rungs, it's like, now you got to make partner, you know? And then, oh, or do you have your own firm? And it's just like, there's always the next level to go. Definitely. And it's, um, you know, it's never going to end, which is another reason why striving for status in and of itself is, you know, not necessarily a good thing, because if you're always striving for something else, you're not necessarily going to be happy where you're at. So one of my favorite theories and books on status and how it affects people through school and then through jobs is called Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. And it's by William Dershowitz. And I read that book at like just the right time for me, I think. I read it right out of college. And I it like really just like smacked me in the face of like, holy crap, this is my life. Because he pretty much talks about how to get into, quote unquote, a good school. So a college that's usually like ranked highly in the U.S. News and World Reports, right? Like That's what a good school means for whatever reason. Kids pretty much have to start getting good grades, playing sports and getting leadership roles in sports, doing extracurricular activities, volunteering, like all this stuff pretty much in middle school, but then certainly once freshman year of high school starts, right? And it's a really extreme treadmill to get there. And there's really, really extreme standards. I mean, it's like most people who get into the Ivy League schools probably have a 4.0. They probably have above a 4.0 because they're taking, you know, 12 AP classes and that increases their JPA to 5.0s or 6.0s or whatever. And, you know, I think when you get to those really top schools, it's all about 
it's all about having not just being in three clubs, but doing seven, you know, and not just being in a club, but being the leader of one and founding your own thing. And it's just really, really intense. And I, I know I certainly felt some example of this. As an example, I volunteered at a community garden, I think in eighth grade. And my dad was like, oh, this will be great for your resume. And once again, it's not in a bad way. He wasn't like, you know, pushing me to like, whatever. But it was like, I was aware of how what I did looked from a very early age. I was like, okay, everything I do is kind of about tallying up my score so that I win the race at the end. And winning the race was getting to a highly ranked college, at least, you know, I think certainly for me and Hannah. Did you feel any of that, Caleb? You know, um, I think maybe that is one of the ways in which being from my particular background was um, kind of helpful for me in that it sort of saved me from some of those pressures. Um, Because to be totally honest, um, having low expectations is kind of nice because it's uh, not that difficult to meet them. So like when I brought home good grades at an early age, my parents were basically thrilled. And so they weren't necessarily putting those pressures on me because, you know, I don't think they necessarily knew what the next step was or the kinds of things that I needed to do to get into a good school, you know? So in short, um, no, I, I don't think I necessarily felt those kind of pressures and, you know, I'm glad that I didn't. But I think like not having those kind of external pressures from other people anyway, aside from, you know, just wanting to get good grades and that kind of thing kind of allowed for me to put those pressures on myself and to try and take my own path towards it, you know, what I viewed as success at that time. Did that change at all in college? Because I think kind of, at least so back to the narrative of excellent sheep is that, you know, he kind of talks about how people in high school just pushing their kids towards these highly ranked schools, right? So then they're on this treadmill of doing all the things in high school to get into college. And then they get to a, you know, quote unquote, good college. And then the treadmill continues, right? It's like, oh, who's class president? Who's doing this, right? And then this guy, you know, over here started his own nonprofit in Botswana. Like, what did you do, Sally? You know, it's kind (laughs) of like, there's a lot of still posturing, I think, especially at those high status schools for who's the best and who's the coolest. I know I felt that way, like for no reason at all, I really wanted to get Phi Beta Kappa. Like, but it didn't matter. Like I really wasted like a lot of Friday nights, like at the library studying for like something that literally mattered to my life. Not at all in the end, but it was like, I needed, I feel like I needed to like prove myself. And it just felt like this race to the, the goldest gold star. Yeah. I think just for a reference, I don't think we've said this yet on the podcast. Samantha went to Middlebury College in Vermont, which is a, a tiny liberal arts school that has a, a really good reputation. And Caleb and I went to Grinnell College, which is a tiny liberal arts school in Iowa, which I think by virtue of being in Iowa is maybe a little bit less well known than Middlebury. Um, 
And I remember, I think one thing that can happen in the status game is a lot of comparison to your peers, because I think as Sam said earlier, like it's all about, okay, this person did this one thing. So what have you done? And it's, it feels a little bit like this scarcity model, like, uh, or a competition model of like, okay, this person's in seven clubs. So you have to be in eight clubs and it just keeps building and building and building. And even though Samantha and I tried really hard not to compete with each other and directly compare ourselves when we were younger and still now today, it's it's hard not to. And I definitely felt even the the minutia of the status between Middlebury and Grinnell and Samantha's GPA and my GPA, like she made five beta kappa and I don't even know if we had it, uh, but I, I don't think I got it. And so... I definitely distinctly remember thinking that like Samantha was working harder than me or Samantha was the better student than me because of these pretty small differences. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have always felt those, that kind of competitive pressure. Definitely. Um, But for me, you know, that has kind of always been in the form of getting good grades to the exclusion of almost anything else. Mm -hmm. So you know, I didn't participate in a lot of extracurriculars in high school, and I didn't participate in clubs in college either. And I basically just spent all my time reading or doing my homework or doing something else that I thought would, um, you know, help me get better grades or maybe prepare me to, you know, be a professor, which is kind of what I wanted to do when I was in college. And I think it just always sort of came back to, you know, this is something that I think I can do. This is a way where I can feel like I'm doing well, where I feel like I'm succeeding. And, you know, this grade that I got on my report card allows me to directly compare myself to others. And, um, you know, that's something that really drove me in, you know, elementary and high school and drove me in college and honestly drove me in law school. And probably uh, to the detriment of developing a lot of other skills that would have been very useful to me um, as a professional, you know? Did you ever get a bad grade, Caleb? You know, I got like a C once in PE. (laughs) Oh, no. Because I was like, you know, literally weighed 260 pounds when I was 13. I was a very large child. Um, so it just feels like you're picking on me at a certain point by giving me a C and PE, you know? Yeah, Uh, that really feels like it's horrible and should not be graded. But, um, I, I was definitely salty about that for a long time. (laughs) Are you still salty? Are you over it? It clearly doesn't bother me anymore. (laughs) I'm totally well adjusted. And, um... You know, no one would ever say otherwise. I, don't think. <laughs> I mean, okay. Being like, I was talking about like, oh, in high school, so competitive. Okay. First grade, I distinctly remember a spelling test and I was the only first grader who got 40 out of 40. And there was three f- second graders who did. And I was pumped. I was pumped, and I remember telling my mom when he went to the dentist. So, I mean, this started from a quite early age for me. 
No, yeah. Elementary school years are cutthroat. At least if you <laughs> go around like I did. Incredible. <laughs> so I think this this lovely conversation into our beautiful inner lives. No wonder we don't like to get feedback, right? Um, <laughs> is kind of brings us to some of the consequences of this rat race, right? So if you if you got on some version of this, I'm going to achieve, right? And I'm going to do, you know, try to achieve for external validation. Starting, you know, however, whatever acceptable age that is to, you know, through college, there are some serious um, consequences to that. I think one of them is that the rat race is super rigged, right? It's super rigged for the wealthy. It's super rigged for white people. You know, it's just not a fair race. And this is like the concept of meritocracy and the American dream. And that if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like you can do it is certainly not the case. And I think the college admission scandal is a super clear example of this, but like the length that the wealthy will go to get their kids into a top school and how much money they will pay to get them there and how many lies they will do is pretty extreme. I know that like Hannah and I took the SATs and when we first took them, I think had like fine scores. And then our parents were able to afford us taking a Princeton review prep course, you know, which was not a super cheap course. And my scores went up like two or 300 points. But I think at the time, I definitely wasn't aware of that. I was just like, oh, I took a class and then I was better. Like, that's how learning works. Cool. Now I have good scores. But I really didn't think about how like that was a private class that my parents could afford. And there's so many people who don't have that access. And then colleges are just measuring you on this standard that's supposed to be objective that 100% is not. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, I think one of the things about grades in particular that really appealed to me at least was that not only was it a form of, you know, external validation, but at least, you know, when it came time when I was in high school, these grades at least seemed to be useful for something. And so, you know, in some ways, I definitely have um, a certain amount of privilege in that I went to a good public high school, which is, you know, becoming rarer and rarer. Although, you know, I was kind of in a rural area, so I think sometimes that actually helps. But, you know, I think that my being able to do well in school was, you know, really my only path out of the sort of lower middle class background that I came from in this sort of blighted area that I was growing up in. So in some ways, if the meritocracy is alive today, and uh, it definitely seems to be getting weaker and weaker by the day, you know, maybe it is in sort of that system that, that would allow me to, you know, grow up and do well and kind of escape that area. But yeah. that's also why um, the college admission scandal really pissed me off, like way more so than most other people who, you know, I would talk to about it when it was in the news. Just because, you know, there are already so few paths for people to 
try and make it out of their, you know, preordained socioeconomic class. And uh, the idea that that's basically just being shadow manipulated. And by the way, it's not as if it's difficult to just buy your kid into a school legitimately, you know? So yeah, I completely agree with your sentiment. Yeah. So then, and I, and I think, I guess let's acknowledge that like you did, you in particular are like got on this kind of like pathway to a, you know, a job and a career that is giving you more money and more stable income. So in some, it's not completely dead. Right. And in some ways it works, but it's certainly not available to everyone. And it's like, you had to like, like you said, you gave up a lot of things to do that. Totally. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that if I grew up in some of the schools that, you know, I later taught at, you know, there was no way that this path necessarily would have been open to me. I, you know, there was a lot of really fortuitous circumstances that led me to where I am today. You know, anything from like me being kind of a loner as a child, which kind of allowed me to just sort of fall into reading. And I think that that was ultimately really helpful. But in the end, you know, not great for your social life. So there are just tons of these little things that you know, sort of built up fortuitously and allowed me to be where I am today. And I, it's not um, by any means just kind of a function of how awesome I am. I have four siblings who were more or less born in exactly the same situation as I was. And, you know, one of them is in and out of prison. Um, one of them's doing okay. My brother passed away last year. You know, there's sort of meth addiction everywhere. And it's like, I think what I mean to say is just that I'm not qualitatively different than my siblings, you know? And the mm -hmm. only real difference is just I happen to get lucky at an early age to, you know, get my kicks from doing things that in the end ended up helping me, but it wasn't a series of deliberate choices that I made and um, yeah, not to go too far afield. No, no, it's good. Cause I think it's like, we're trying to look at the pros and cons here a little bit of like, it's easy to say, don't care about status or like whatever else, but this is, it's not, once again, status is tied to for many, many people like, their need to get out of poverty or like get a good job. And so I think, I think that story really just helps provide nuance and like a holistic view to our conversation. So thank you. And yeah. I'm sorry to hear about your brother. Also, we didn't say that, but. I appreciate that. Um, but I think in the end, like it's directly connected to status. I mean, how many ways do you have of getting status as, you know, someone who's coming up in a not a great area or in a great socioeconomic class. Yeah. So one other challenge with being on kind of the, the treadmill to success, right, of like getting good grades, going to 
college, then maybe going to grad school or law school, I know, is pretty stressful after having dated someone through law school, is the stress, right? I think it's hard to base, I mean, and this is once again, back to my fave book ever, Excellent Sheep. Basically, to get to some of those really great schools, you can never fail, right? You can't, you know, that one C in gym class, right? It's like holding you back. And there's a lot of people whose transcripts, if they have a couple Bs or a couple Cs, you know, they're not getting into the best schools. And then it creates this mentality of you have to be good at everything you do the first time you ever try it. And that's really, really stressful. Yeah, I think the doing something, having to be good at something before you start was so real for me and is so real for a lot of people. I remember at age 13 kind of wanting to learn guitar, but being like, well, it's too late for me because I'm not going to be a prodigy. Yeah. <laughs> I almost didn't start. And I, I ended up starting, which was good. But even now, like I'm not that great at guitar. And so it is something that I don't often tell people because I want to tell them about the things that I feel like I'm really good at. And I never pushed myself at guitar because I knew that there were always going to be thousands of people, more than tens of thousands of people who are better than me at it. And so I was like, oh, I'll never do an open mic because like maybe it'll be embarrassing to do it among these people who are so much better than me. I don't know how many thousands of people play guitar, by the way. I just want to say that if it's hundreds of thousands of people, I'm very sorry. I don't want to say that I'm good at guitar. <laughs> How dare you think you're only worse than tens of thousands of people? She's not humble, everyone. You found it here. Oh, God. I do want to say I am proud of 13-year-old Hannah for starting, though. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Do you did you Do you feel like... Caleb, that you're that you felt any of this stress or like this loss of other things you could be doing if you weren't seeking status? Yeah, totally. I mean, the whole thing about getting good grades and sort of always striving, even for that particular form of you know external validation or status. Um, is incredibly stressful. You know, you have to study, you have to be prepared for tests, you have to write well. And all of those things are kind of, you know, just different forms of stress that you're kind of constantly putting on yourself. And, um, you know, maybe one of the things that, I don't know, not to be too positive about, you know, this rat race we've been talking about, but it has kind of helped me sort of organize and relate to stress in a positive way because, you know, it's ultimately something that you're going to need and you're going to need to handle. Um, Cause if you're going, going to be motivated to do anything. Um, I think there's a certain amount of stress that comes along with that. But then again, you know, if you're only focusing on one thing to the exclusion of, you know, maybe becoming more social or, um, you know, making friends or that kind of thing. I think that in the end, it could ultimately uh, be a, a liability as well. Yeah. 
I think finding the balance of that is tough because I think a lot of people who use stress to motivate them and then get success continue to use stress to motivate them. Like you are talking to me right now. Yeah. Like I, I think as a therapist, like I see this a lot and I felt this in myself. Like I'm like, I need my anxiety. Like my anxiety gets me through the day. Like if I didn't have anxiety, I'd do nothing. Like there's already so many things I'm still not doing and I have anxiety, right? Like I haven't vacuumed. So if I didn't have anxiety, when would I ever vacuum? And I think that what I try to do for myself and try to say as a therapist is, is to try to find some intrinsic motivation which can be really hard. And it's definitely one of those things that's easier said than done. I think that one thing I always think about when I think about you, Caleb, was how much intrinsic motivation it also seemed like you had about learning. Like, I remember, and and I'm not saying it wasn't coupled with stress, because I remember like uh, evenings being like, hey, do you want to hang out? And you'd be like, oh, I'm going to read this novel for my class. And I think you majored in English. Um, but I, I'd be like, you know, you don't need to read the whole book, Caleb. You can just like read part of it and kind of like bullshit around in class. And you'd be like, but I like reading the book. Yeah. And, you know, some of that was intrinsic for sure. Um, and that's something that, you know, I want to drive me in life as kind of a, a curiosity. Um, and at my best, I think that's definitely true. But at the same time, it's it's really difficult to separate that from what is in the end, um, you know, just stress and anxiety, sort of stress about, um, you know, learning more, becoming the best version of yourself that you can be, and kind of making yourself anxious about that particular pursuit. Um and for me, I, I've really never been able to separate those things. And, um, you know, anxiety continues to be, you know, a pretty big issue and problem in my life. And I I would say that in the end, it's definitely, um, you know, was kind of a really powerful source of motivation. But also, as I, you know, turned 30 this year and I'm getting into my profession, um, the issues with anxiety without having a really clear outlet, like, you know, getting a good grade on a report card can become really problematic as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're often dual like that. Like, um, and maybe in my mind, I always saw you as having more intrinsic motivation than me, but it's like coupled together, almost like, um, it's it's hard to uncouple them. I, I'm imagining this like tree in a vine, like growing on the tree in this symbiotic relationship. But like part of the symbioticness is like one of them's like choking the other one. Um, it's kind of a intense vision. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning a lot about uh, today. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's, 
I'm like, as you can tell, very into this book, but that's why the title is called Excellent Sheep, right? Because the, the sheep part is the part of like people have lost their intrinsic motivation, right? And they're just jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop that somebody has placed before them. And why I know I feel like we have been talking all about like school and stuff and maybe not answering directly answering the letter writer's question yet of like a job. But I think the point is that all of this can build up to then when it comes time to choose your career, you don't have a sense of what you really are passionate about. You don't have a sense of this thing brings me joy or this is the thing I want to achieve in my life or do in my life myself. Most of your life has been spent doing the things that other people told you to do. Take this AP class because it will help you get into college. Do this internship because it will look good on your resume. And then you don't have that sense of self. And so then when it comes to your career, you're not quite sure what direction to go. And it can be overwhelming. It can be daunting. There's all these options. How are you going to choose? And that's when... I think you can be impacted by people telling you this job has a lot of status, right? This is a good job. And then you can pretty easily just follow that path without really questioning it. In the book, Excellent Sheep, the author also mentions in particular that investment banking and management consulting have really realized that at prestigious schools, Ivy League, top tier public schools, liberal arts schools, the graduates are really smart. They're really hardworking, really motivated, and they're looking for a job that has status. They're kind of looking for the next thing that where they can achieve and and grow. And so that's one of the reasons they recruit at those schools and they create a pipeline of, you know, working there and then maybe getting your MBA and then continuing to work there. And there's lots of levels within those companies. And once again, I'm not saying it's not that those are bad jobs or actually can be really good jobs. You know, they pay a lot. They, they have these awesome things, but oftentimes people don't really consider if that's what they want it's kind of just the next thing to do. And so then they're there and then they're still unsure exactly what they want next, but it's kind of can be easy to stay in those roles or stay on that path in this role that's successful where they're getting paid money, where they have status. And one of the specific challenges with these roles is they can be really, really long work weeks where you're working you know, seven to 12 at night and you're not necessarily seeing your family. You're not necessarily, don't even have time to go to the gym. I know I did an informational interview with somebody in that field and that's what they told me that sometimes those things come second. And I just thought, I just don't know if that fits with my values. You know, even though this would be a great job for my resume, it just that, I don't know if I could do that lifestyle and be happy. Yeah, Sam. And I remember when you were thinking about that, it was such a conflict for you. Like it was, you you had an interview and you'd like, or you'd like look at their website and you'd be just like racked with anxiety thinking about that life. But then if you maybe made another choice that had less prestige, 
like you, you know, you've had a few jobs over the years. And then when you felt like you weren't like on this right track, you'd be like, oh, if only I'd gone to work at Deloitte for two years. Like I should have just put in my time. Yeah. And I think it's because it kind of gets to the pros and cons of like, it's not like this is all made up in people's head, right? Like, first of all, there's the monetary benefit, like those jobs pay a lot of money, right? So there's that. But there, the prestige does get you places. And like, I've looked at jobs that are in my field that say like, you know, X years of big four consulting experience which if I had taken or can, I don't, I didn't get that job because I dropped out of the interview process. But if I continued and gotten it, then all these other doors would have been open to me that are now closed. And I think I ended up taking a much more roundabout path that had his wonderful things and great moments. But like, I, I definitely can feel that I didn't take that choice that would have been more straightforward. Completely. And I think one of the traps that you can fall into and I may be currently in the process of falling into is like, once you take a job that has a certain amount of status associated with it, like in my case, moving from being a public defender to moving to, you know, a fairly prestigious law firm to then go back on that almost seems like a failure. Um, Mm-hmm. to sort of relinquish that status for, you know, whatever the reason may be. And I think that totally. that is definitely a trap that, you know, you can fall into and maybe something that the letter writer should think about when they're considering, you know, this particular position. Although in my case, you know, I would say that, you know, I did not take a new position solely, you know, out of status. Um, in the end, it was a combination of status. I'm not going to lie, but then also, you know, monetary concerns, you know, is this going to generally be good for my career? Am I going to get an opportunity to do things here that I wouldn't otherwise? Does this align with my skills? That kind of thing. Yeah. I think that kind of brings us to like, a good time to talk about values because there's many things you can prioritize in your career and many people want, it's easy to want it all. Like I I think I sometimes ask people in my first coaching conversation, I'm like, okay, list your dream job, right? What are the things that you would have? And everyone kind of says the same thing, right? They're like, I want a high paying job. I want work-life balance. I want to be creative. I want to have autonomy you know, I want it to be a good job, right? They kind of list these things that then are often, some of them can go together and some of them are competing. And I actually have, I have a little values assessment I can throw up on my website so you can check it out if you want to see it. But basically, you know, status is one of them. And once again, it's one of those things that is, it's very linked to things like money, right? It's, it's often that those two are correlated very strongly, not always, but they definitely can be. And so then I think sometimes people just think, oh, it's a good job because maybe it it pays well and maybe you have good benefits and maybe it's a job that you get some responsibility, which a lot of people want. And then that usually in that package, it can come with status, right? And then it kind of is just happily this bonus thing that's woven in. But it certainly can often be 
a competing interest with other priorities, often work-life balance is a main one, right? All Most of the jobs we listed, you have to be working really long hours, which then can conflict with a value like family or friends or hobbies or other things in your life. And I think another big one it can often conflict with is basically doing good, right? So like Caleb is talking about like being a public defender where you're helping so many people, right, is often seen as less, has less status than being in private law. Yeah, and that was definitely my experience as a public defender too, is like, you know, one of the things that you would think about, although, you know, it wasn't at the top of my mind, but like I said, it's, it's a job that people associate with, you know, not great lawyering. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the money. You know, everyone knows that the pay is shit. And um, I think the assumption then is that, well, if this person could do anything else or were capable of doing anything else, they would be doing something where they make more money. Now, like, that's an assumption and totally not true. And the public defenders I worked with were there almost completely for, like, you know, ideological reasons, because it was work that they believed in. But for whatever reason, um, I think that's kind of difficult to accept, um, you know, to society at large, especially if you have a job like being a lawyer, where it's kind of just assumed that, you know, you're trying to make as much money as possible. Yeah, higher status in terms of paying jobs often don't don't coincide with jobs that want to do good. Like, you know, our society has really messed up values in how we compensate people. So, you know, being a teacher, being a social worker, other do good jobs that I can't think of right now, you know, don't make a lot of money. And so then a lot of people get into those jobs because they want to make a change and they want to do good and they want to work with people and and then we don't compensate them and they might have their own kind of status in maybe a different way like a oh you're doing so good like you're great um but they might not have a different kind of status that comes with more mm, the wealth maybe yeah, I I would agree with that. And, you know, when I would talk with people who, you know, knew my values and knew, you know, probably why I was I was being a public defender, you know, I think generally they would view that as admirable. And maybe the idea that you're doing something admirable, that you're kind of making a sacrifice that, you know, people will know that you're giving something up to do work that you believe in. Um, maybe that does come with a certain kind of status in that, you know, look at my values. Aren't I a cool person? But that's completely different than, you know, the status that comes from just having a quote unquote good job. And, um, yeah, having done both, um, you know, it's, it's really, kind of incomparable i also think there's there's almost a you can't win almost like a 
there's so many times when it when jobs will feel like this either or and if you feel the pressure to have both of those kinds of status like I want to make money and have this prestige and I want the status of or not just the status but like the actual work of doing good and and there's so few jobs where you can do both of those things or even even make enough money right not even make a lot, but like enough to be comfortable or not stress. Like it's very, very hard to have that or even a job that feels like it's neutral in this crazy world. But like, I remember, um, I think Samantha and I were walking in DC. We both had internships there after we graduated college and I ran into two people from Grinnell and I don't, I don't even remember their names, so I'm not going to like call them out on this podcast, but, um, you know, I was like, oh, like, what are you doing in D.C. this summer? And I think one of them was like, oh, I'm just, you know, like messing around. And the other one was the other guy who was with him was like, he's lying. He's doing an internship in investment banking. <laughs> <laughs> he was just completely trying. Like, yeah, exactly. Like not to tell us because it was like embarrassing to him that he was doing this career that that seemed like it was like very much for the man. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people do, they feel like they're selling out, right? That's the other thing. If they're like, oh my God, I'm going to get my MBA, but is that selling out? Or am I going to like go work at this management company, but I'm selling out and they feel bad about themselves in that way. So it's just like, once again, I feel like people in terms of, you can't win in terms of having it all in like the way that America's economy is structured right now. I also want to add, a lot of the jobs that we've been talking about have required a degree or a graduate degree, but there are so many jobs out there that don't, you know, maybe in the service industry or in retail that I think our society doesn't view as having a lot of status, which is total BS. I mean, people are working their butts off in those roles and they're really hard and challenging roles. And we've been talking about how status is combined with wealth sometimes and not other times. And I think those roles are a good example of how it's mixed. I mean, there's some roles that are super just paid minimum wage and they're super underpaid and undervalued. And there's some roles like maybe bartending where you can make a lot more money than a lot of office jobs. But often our society does view those as having less status or being less hard, which is just, once again, total crap. So just wanted to acknowledge that a lot of the roles we've been talking about are maybe more white collar jobs, but there's just wanted to br- acknowledge that there's tons of other roles out there and there's interesting and sometimes messed up ways that status can be connected to those. Cool. So we've kind of, we've talked about a bunch of different things around status, but kind of once again, back to the letter writer that she's wondering what she should do in her second job. Should she go for status or not? And I think we're all saying like there's pros and cons for sure. I would say certainly if you're going to go for something for status, just be really aware of it um, and not do it because you think you have to, or because it seems like the only path. And back to my obviously fave book in the world, Excellent Sheep, <laughs> wanted to read <laughs> everyone read it. I'm not getting an affiliate pay for this, although I should be, but 
maybe I can work on that. Um, but I'm going to read this quote and just, okay, more context about the book. He worked at Yale. And so he's kind of talking from the sense of how schools are miseducating students. And he's talking to the context for this quote is he's talking about how schools push people to be leaders. And then he's saying like, but what does leadership actually mean in their mind? So this is a quote. What they mean is nothing more than getting to the top, making partner at a major law firm or running a department at a leading hospital or becoming a senator or chief executive or college president, being in charge. In other words, climbing the greasy pole of whatever hierarchy you decide to attach yourself to, winning an impressive title so the school can brag about you on its website. I love that quote. I feel like the climbing the greasy pole of whatever hierarchy you attach yourself to just like has stuck with me because I think it just speaks like no matter where you go, like there's always somewhere to climb. Like you could always be promoted one more time. Like you could always get another little award or a bonus or like whatever it is you're chasing, no matter where you go. And that race for its own sake, I think it's very unlikely to lead you to a happy life of purpose. I completely agree. I don't think that the fact that a job has certain status associated with it and the fact that you're considering that is necessarily a bad thing. In the end, I think that other factors are much more important in terms of you know deciding what you want to do and where you want to go. Such as, you know, does this job align with my values? Um, is this going to allow me to uh, exercise my skills in a way that, um, or is this job going to allow me to grow skills that are important to me and that kind of thing? And ultimately, you know, those are the kind of things that I think about when I'm, you know, making a career move. But I've only been a lawyer for like four years. So, I probably don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I think about status and how it's worked with my career is a bit of a bonus. Like, I think that being a therapist with a private practice has gotten me a a sense of status, at least when I meet new people and I say that's what I do. People are like, oh, that's really cool or that's really impressive. And it I do feel that warm glow, like that, that a feeling of like, ah, I did it. And, but that wasn't why I chose to be a therapist. And it wasn't why I chose to have a private practice. I really was and am passionate about the work I do. And the reason I wanted to go into private practice was more for the autonomy than the status. Like if you're thinking about the values that Samantha talked about earlier, um, the autonomy and the flexibility and that work-life balance was was what drove me to that. And I think I have found one of those careers that is that really, really lucky mix of like the thing that gives you more work-life balance actually gives you more status, which I don't think happens most of the time. And if I had to choose, I would have picked the work-life balance. But again, it was like this bonus of people respecting me but when I don't even think I necessarily have earned that respect like I think there are people who work much harder or longer hours in agencies that I think in in a way would deserve more respect 
I almost feel like I took this like easy way out in a way, but that, um, I don't know. It doesn't always match up. Like I think as Samantha was saying earlier, like there's definitely weird norms in our, in our society about like what is assigned more value that doesn't match up with how hard someone's working at all. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think status in the end, like can be kind of arbitrary and like, if that is your goal in an unexamined way, completely insidious. Okay. Should we move to, we have one, one letter to top it off. That's a bit shorter and a bit, just kind of a little more fun. So, uh, Hannah, you want to read it? I have a master's degree from Harvard. Am I a douchebag if I display the diploma in my office? Should I do anything with it at all? Let it gather dust in the basement? The degree was a required part of my credentialing, but not necessarily the most important part. Also, my work really relies on interpersonal relationships and approachability, so I don't want to be that guy, you know? Any advice? So... This one really hits home because it's a uh, ongoing dilemma, very close to an ongoing dilemma that uh, I actually currently have. In law school, if you get the best grade in a class, you get what's called a Cali Award. And, you know, they give you a little paper certificate and it's, you know, completely arbitrary and kind of ridiculous. Um, But, you know, some attorneys will like put how many Cali awards in the classes they got them in on the website, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's a diploma to be framed and, you know, maybe hung up. So I got a couple of these Cali awards. And by a couple, how many, how many was that Caleb? How many is a couple? Okay. I got 11 Cali awards. If you couldn't tell from the podcast, I'm um, probably hard to be around. Who knows? Um, but anyway, you know, I had all these awards and I framed each and every one of them and put them up in my office as a public defender. I think, um, you know, kind of trying to show people that you know, you should think that I'm smart and, you know, you should respect me. In the end, though, you know, that's a lot of nails in the wall. That's kind of ridiculous. Like, (laughs) takes up half of an entire wall and it's incredibly (laughs) ostentatious and um, probably just look like a douchebag. But, you know... What goes in the 12th spot? Like, how are you, like, walk me through the layers of which, (laughs) where it's displayed. Well, you know, it really depends on the office configuration. So, um, (laughs) I tried to not put it, like, in the wall where you'd see it as soon as you walk in. Like, Mm. because I Mm. thought that might be a little too much. You know? (laughs) Um, So... I've had them on on my left wall, kind of on the inside mm-hmm. wall uh, as you walk through the door. Even then, you know, as I was doing it, I was like, this is probably a little much, honestly. <laughs> um, 
it's kind of a thing about how you want people to view you, right? So I, I completely understand what the question writer is saying. Um, we call I them have, letter writers, Caleb. Um, it's not a question writer, okay? <laughs> okay. I apologize. Get it right. <laughs> I completely understand what the letter writer is saying. Um, all I can say is that clearly I have fallen on one side of the question and um, I completely respect if he or she chooses to go the other direction uh, to not look like a douchebag, which I'm sure I do to people, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the pronouns, which um, I don't think we shared this with you, which sorry about that. But um, one thing I wanted to mention is gender because we actually, we know that this letter writer is a she. And I do think that, when you're a woman, there's, I think there's even more pressure to not appear too big for your britches, right? Like, <laughs> um, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> just the way you said that with a straight face. <laughs> Couldn't take it. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, this is why people hate Hillary Clinton. Like, I mean, that and many other reasons, right? But it's like, oh, you think you're smart. Like, you went to elite schools and, meh, like, we want you to be great, but never talk about how you're great. Like, so I think as a woman, like, hanging up your degree from Harvard kind of feels to me like, I mean, you don't have to, but, you know, you went to Harvard, you went to grad school, you got your degree, like, I don't think you have to make yourself small so that other people feel comfortable. Totally. And I think like, ultimately, I was kind of like, you know what? I worked really hard for these things. And if you don't like that, I want to show it off, then, you know, fuck off. <laughs> uh, it is kind of funny, that, like the flip side of having the status is then people judge you, right? Then people are like, jealous right oh you went to harvard ram, ram, ram. And it's like man you work so hard to get to harvard so you can go to harvard and get the status and then people are like eh, you think you're better than me it's like man you you can't win you can't win in this rat race <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i'd end just be like you do you like the the art of putting diplomas in your office is this is this standard of office culture don't do it if you don't want to. But like, if you're like, yeah, I'm proud of this. And I want to display it. Put that thing up, you know, the left wall, the right wall, the back wall, the door, like whatever feels <laughs> like the place for you. Go for it. And on that note, <laughs> we can sign off. Thank you all for listening. And thank you so much, Caleb, for being our first ever guest. No, it was great. And it was, it was lovely. So, and it was just good, good to hang. So thanks for joining the show. No, thanks for having me. Um, it was a lot of fun and, uh, I appreciate you for letting me ramble at you for, uh, God knows how long. And I hope some of what I said was intelligible. All right. See you all next time. Thank you so much for listening. 
Yeah, and thank you for sharing your stories. And if you want, if you have a story and you want to write in, please do. You can write in at closelyrelatedpodcast.gmail.com. at gmail.com. That is closelyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. And are you sitting there thinking, should I write in? I don't know. Like maybe they have too many people write in already, or maybe my thing isn't cool enough. Yes, you write in now. We want you. Also, it's completely anonymous, uh, but please put in email your pronouns so we know how to refer to you. And also, if you're listening, please subscribe, rate the podcast, or write a review on whatever platform you listen to. It really helps. It does. Um, To learn more about the show, you can check us out at closelyrelatedpodcast.com. Or if you want to learn more about coaching with me, you can go to quartercrisis.com. And if you want to learn about my work as a therapist, you can go to hannahstromcounseling.com. As a reminder, this show does not constitute therapy or coaching. So if you need that, please reach out to a coach or therapist in your area as soon as possible. Yeah. And this podcast is a product of Pascal Strom Consulting LLC. Thanks again for listening. 